there's a teacher everywhere. If only you're ready to learn, ready to absorb and perceive, there's a teacher everywhere. Just the very fact that what we see here is possible, just the fact that it's possible, tells us a lot about the truth, that nothing is fixed. If it were, then this would never have been possible. Let's try and make sense of all that. That's why we're here. So before we do that then, let us all take a moment to pay homage to the most magnificent one, the undefeated, and the unvanquished one. He who is the teacher and guide and master to 10,000 world systems. He who has none like him. He who is beyond compare, unparalleled. It is his teaching that today we are here to study, understand and comprehend. And as we do so, let us also take this moment to remind ourselves that we are here for a very specific purpose. This is a gathering so that we don't have to come here again. This is a beginning to an end, the start of a journey whose destination we know is ultimate bliss. So, with a renewed oath and a pledge to ourselves to free ourselves from all suffering, let us pay homage to the supremely enlightened one, the fully awakened one. Namo Thassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhassa Namo Thassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhassa Namo Thassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhassa We left a few chapters unfinished. Sometimes chapters that I opened and later to my regret and I thought I shouldn't have. But if a chapter is worth opening, then a chapter is worth finishing. So I thought we should revisit some of those chapters that we opened and try and bring them to a natural conclusion. We talked about Dhamma one or two weeks ago. So it's fine. You, some of you may not have been there when we started reading that particular chapter, but that's fine. I'll make sure that you find the ropes. So we talked about the Dhamma. Now when we talk about the Dhamma, immediately what comes into your mind is the Dhamma that the Buddha preached. So when you say Dhammang Saranangachami, that's the Dhamma that most of us know. The Dhamma, the Buddha Dhamma. The truth is, ladies and gentlemen, that that is not the Dhamma. The Buddha Dhamma is not the Dhamma. The Buddha Dhamma teaches us about the Dhamma. 
It is the teaching about the Dhamma. It is a teaching that gives us the right perspective on the Dhamma. That's why the Noble Eightfold Path starts with what? Right view, Samaditi. In fact, you know this, don't you, that when someone becomes a Sotapanna, it is said that he has seen the Dhamma. So someone who is a stream enterer or a Sotapanna is one who has entered the Noble Eightfold Path. In other words, their perspective is now the right one. What, I, what do I mean by perspective? The way they see things. The way they see what? What things? The Dhamma. That is what? The way they see the Dhamma. The Buddha's teaching... Is this going to continue or we can we... Fix it, please. Are we done? Okay. <coughs> So the Buddha's teaching is to give us the right perspective, in other words, the right view, Samaditi. So one who is a Sotapanna is one who has attained the right view, meaning whatever they have seen up until that point, prior to becoming a Sotapanna, they now see, I mean, just think about why it's called the right view. If that is the right view, then what view do you think they must have been prior to that? Wrong view. The familiar term we have is Mitcha Ditti. You may have heard that. So nothing changes in the outside world except for the view. And that's not in the outside. That's how we see things on the outside. That's how we see everything. So what do we actually see? We see the Dhamma. The Dhamma is everything. In fact, if not for the Dhamma, ladies and gentlemen, you wouldn't perceive any of this. You wouldn't perceive of your existence, you wouldn't perceive the environment around you, you wouldn't perceive anything. The mind's purpose, or the mind exists because there is Dhamma. The Dhamma is what the mind bears. Now when, for instance, you, your eye comes into contact with an object, see, Take this flower, for instance. When your eye comes into contact with this object, now you know that it's obviously not the eye that comes into contact. There's light, so physics makes it possible for us to see this. Each of you in this room will bear this. You now bear it. So much so that if I asked half of the room to shut their eyes, the other half will still bear it if you're all looking at this. So that is proof that each of you bear your own copy of this. Yeah? Although I've only, I've only got one flower in my hand, each of you have a mental copy of it, a mental impression. That is the Dhamma. That is a Rupa. What is wrong view then? 
wrong view of the Dhamma, wrong view of Rupa. When you, have, when you don't understand properly the Dhamma that the mind bears, whatever the mind bears, when you don't understand it properly, that is wrong view. All sorts of problems happen then. And you have lived to tell the tale, haven't you? All sorts of problems happen. Will you, will you believe me if I told you, as I do now, that the reason that you all suffer in your life, so whatever reason that might be, fear, grief, you name it, frustrations, disappointments, agony, misery, all of these things is because you don't bear this properly. Simple as. If I gave you, say, a load to carry, something heavy, okay, say this, this table, right, it's quite heavy. So if I say, asked, maybe this do to come forward and maybe that do to come forward and I said, can you carry this for me? Chances are they'll probably say, uh, not yet, Swami Nancy. We, we, it's too heavy for us. Perhaps they might even give it a try, but then they'll say it's too heavy for us. In other words, what they're saying is we are not ready to bear this. We don't, we don't, we are not capable of bearing this yet. But if you give, me, give us something lighter, maybe we can. Give us a whiteboard, perhaps I can do that. But not the table, it's too heavy, far too heavy. Probably it's far too heavy for me to carry it on my own. You probably need help for that. In other words, if they did try and carry this, what sort of thing would you think might happen? Even the attempt could be quite dangerous, wouldn't it? You could drop it, it might fall on your foot, you might injure yourself, and chances are the table will break. But even if the table doesn't break, you're going to end up hurting yourself. Why? Because you don't know how to bear it. So if you don't know how to bear something, best you not carry it or lift it. So when did you take lessons on how to bear rupa before you started doing it? Now in safe handling, so these, these are some, some things they teach you when you go in, into work, right? Safety at the workplace, they take, teach you safe handling of objects, safe handling, handling of weights. One of the best pieces of advice they give you is if you're not sure how to handle it, now, you see, if you've, this is useful stuff as well, in addition to the Dhamma, because it will help you save your life. Uh, on many occasions, I've seen how when people are asked to lift a weight, they'll, and say, I mean, we need to take it somewhere, the first thing they do is they lift it. See if you've been in that situation. There's a weight, there's a load, right? And you're asked, you're, you're told that it has to be taken somewhere. The first thing that people do is lift it. What do you think about that? Terrible. The first thing you need to do is make sure you need to lift it. Whether you actually have to lift it. The second thing you need to do is to make sure where it needs to go. And see if you have a path to get there safely. This is all before you lift it. But what do people normally do? They lift it and then they try and find a way. Right? And then jumping over things and try and and trying not to you know fall over things. Because we need first of all to understand how to do something before we do it. Otherwise we're just asking for trouble. And whether it's safe to lift, 
Now, one of the best pieces of advice they'll give you when you, if you ever learn safe lifting is first give it a bit of a shake and see, try and get a sense of how heavy it is before you actually lift it. So before you actually put your hands on it and try and lift the whole load, whereby transferring the whole weight onto your back and, and maybe even sometimes breaking your back in, in doing so, first give it a bit of a shake. See how heavy it is. See if it is movable before you do so. But people generally don't have this, uh, this advice and people generally don't follow this advice. So what do they do? They just try and lift it. And in doing so, they can end up causing a great deal of damage to themselves. In the same way, ladies and gentlemen, if you bear a rupert without knowing how to do so, you're just asking for trouble. How do I know? How do you know this? That is what has happened to you all. You bear a rupert without knowing how to. That is because of Michaditti. Wrong view. Wrong view of what? That very rupa itself. So you see, this is the Dhamma. I'm showing you, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> behold, the Dhamma. No, it's a flower, Swami Nuhansa. It's a flower in my hand, it's Dhamma in yours. As this object comes into contact with your eye, in your mind, what you bear is the Dhamma. And the Dhamma is infinite. They, you know, we can fill this room up with, with people. And even if we had a room ten, size, 10 times the size of this, and we had, a, had an audience 10 times the size of this, and they could all take a copy of this, and this would not have diminished one bit. It would still be here for the next 10,000 people to come here and have a look at it. And they can all bear it. So, it's important that we understand what the Dhamma is before we begin to understand what the Buddha Dhamma is. If you don't understand what this is, now you understand or you see the world through Mara Dhamma, not Buddha Dhamma. What is Mara Dhamma? A self-growing Dhamma. A self-growing Dhamma. A self-fostering Dhamma. It, it grows the self. In other words, if you took this Rupa as a separate Rupa, Havoc. That's Mara. There's a lovely etymology that has been presented for the word Mara. Ma'ara. In other words, one which grows the self. So there are only two types of ways in which you can bear something. You can either bear it through right view, and that would be Buddha, or Mara. Until and unless you come across the Buddha's teaching, all things the mind has borne, right from whenever it started doing it, to that point before it understood the Dhamma, was all Mara Dhamma. That is why the 11 great fires we had to suffer as a result. What is jati after all? That moment when in your mind, whatever you have born, you give an identity, right? It becomes a, a unique object. It becomes a part of yourself. 
And when that happens, along with it comes death, disease, fear, grief, right? Lamentation and all that. These are the 11 great fires that follow. No before, no after. So no sooner than jati happens, 11 great fires follow. All because of a lack of understanding of how this rupa should be born. Born meaning, not as in giving birth, born as in how you bear it. So the Buddha Dhamma is for us to learn how to bear something correctly. In, in fact, you could even call it safe handling procedures. <laughs> We're here to learn the safe handling of, of Rupa, the safe handling of Vedana, the safe handling of Sanya, the safe handling of Sankara and Vinyana. Because this is what the mind deals with right you know, throughout the day. From the start of the day to the end, what you do is bear Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara and Vinyana, the five aggregates. This is how you understand the world. So if you misunderstand the world, then there is suffering. That is why we always talk about suffering is self-made. You know, suffering cannot be inflicted by me upon you. You have to create your own suffering. And people do a fine job at it, don't they? They have to create their own suffering. It cannot be imported. It cannot be manufactured outside. It cannot be outsourced to somebody to do it on your behalf. It is all done by yourself. You have to create your own suffering. That's why your salvation is also your own. So we are here then to understand how to bear the Dhamma. What is the Dhamma again? Not the Buddha Dhamma. The Buddha Dhamma is how to bear the Dhamma. That is the teaching. That is the instruction. That's the instruction manual. In fact, you know, each of these things should come with an instruction manual. It does. Once every so many kalpas, it comes with an instruction manual. So they drop this first and then the instruction manual comes later. That's how the universe works. What is his instruction manual? The Buddha. That's the instruction manual. Can you walk outside and find suffering for me? Let's bring that bugger and teach him a lesson and chase him out of our lives. Let's all go find the suffering that we've all endured in our lives. Let's bring it all in here and let's beat them down, right? crush them right? and destroy them. And then when we leave this room, we'll all be fine. Can you do that? Why can't you do that? Why can't you do that? Because it's not out there, is it? It's not out there. This is why it's pointless to point your finger and say, you caused me suffering. Why did you make me angry? Why did you make me cry? You annoy me. Stop doing that. This is foolish. None of those things are manufactured on the outside. They're all made here. Which is why the Buddha Dhamma can empower you. If you want to suffer, you can suffer. You know, it's, your, it's perfectly fine. It's your choice. But if you don't want to suffer, you don't have to. That is also your choice. So tell me then, why do people suffer? Lack of understanding. Lack of right view. In fact, it is because they don't know how to bear this. They don't know how to bear this. If you don't know how to bear a rupa, you will suffer. You will suffer. 
There's no, there's no, no, no two, two words about it. You will suffer if you don't know how to bear a rupa. Rupa upadana kanda dukkha. Panchupadana kanda dukkha, you'll have heard it, that will be more familiar to you. But what is the pancha in there? The five? Rupa upadana kanda dukkha. Vedana upadana kanda dukkha. See? So when I present this to you, when I put this in front of your eyes, what happens in your mind? Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara and Vinyana, right? Because of our wrong view, you don't stop there. What happens is the Upadana part. The clinging part. Remember I made the analogy the other day? Like a mother that clings on to the... Sorry, like a child that clings on to its mother when he wants something so bad. I, I want it, I want it, I want it. Can it give it to me? Right? In the same way, the mind clings on to the Rupa, expecting something that the Rupa cannot give. So why does it do that? Because it thinks the Rupa can give it. Ask the flower or ask this Rupa for something that it can give, it will give it to you. Ask it for yellow, it will give it to you. Ask it for red. There's not a thing that this can do to give you red, because there is no red. It can give you yellow, it can give you green, probably give you light green. But it can't give you red. So what happens when you ask for something that cannot be given? There are two things that can happen. Either you'll be disappointed and you have to be informed that it cannot be given, or Another, another nice thing can happen. In your desire to have it, as it becomes so overwhelming and you can't, you, you can't bear it, you can't, you can't manage yourself, you can't control yourself, you can go crazy. You can go mad. And then you can make believe that you've got it. So when someone asks you for something you don't have, Two things can happen. Either they can be disappointed, or if that disappointment gets just too much, they can go crazy. And then they'll believe that they've got it, so you can walk away without giving it to them at all. The reason that you all feel that you are an identity, you all feel that you are an individual, is because when the rupa comes into your mind through the eye, you, you beg for identity. Is your identity in this? Hmm? Is your identity in this? Then why do you ask this for it? If you tell me this is your identity is in here, look what I'm going to do to your identity. I just snapped your identity. Aren't I evil? I just snapped your identity. But that doesn't stop you. Now, you see, even when I show you this, you still believe that your identity is in this. You feel that yourself is in this. This individual that you sense. There's no other way you can create it. You, 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 you know, when this rupa enters your mind, you embrace this rupa. You embrace this rupa. And then like a mother, I beg your pardon, like a child clinging to a mother, begging for something it wishes to have, 
the mind clings on to this rupa, begging to experience separation, begging to experience identity. This identity is what we call separation. I mean, the self is simply, the self this, that you call I is simply a label that you give to the first separation that you experience. Because wherever you look, you, you, all you see is separation, right? But the first separation that you experience, you need to give it a name. And that is the I, the me that you give. Because when separation happens, it first happens in your mind. And then that very first separation, you have to give it a name. And the name that you give is I, me. In every language, you have a word for it. Why does every language have a word for it? Because what is language for? Exactly, for people to talk about themselves and others. So every language should have a word for, for me. Does an arahant not use that word? They do. But that is a convention. So, our understanding of the Dhamma is not going to stop us from using those words. I always tell you, you know, use everything but own nothing. Whatever there is in your, that, that comes into your life, you know, whatever life affords you, whatever life makes available to you, use it. So, you know, say I had to go somewhere, right? Someone's invited me for a sermon, for instance, right? And they send me a helicopter. As a decent monk, what should I do? As a decent monk, hmm? as a down-to-earth, humble monk, what should I do? It's on the other side of Sri Lanka. I mean, a helicopter is just too, too much, isn't it? Wouldn't be very decent of me to take a helicopter, right? What should I do? I should walk. Hmm? I should walk to the other side of the country. And if I get there in one piece and there's still energy left in me, then maybe I can at least precept them. And then tell them, unfortunately, that's all the energy I have now. Maybe another day. Wise or silly, do you think? Quite silly. You know, there is an abstinence that, as Buddhists, we must all try to observe. We abstain from things. But we don't abstain from things. We abstain from wrong view. We abstain from false speech. Now, when you observe the precepts this morning, right? what are some of the Veramanis you observed? Panatipata Veramani. Adinnadana Veramani. Today, Pansil, what is it? Okay, so you have Abrahamacharya Veramani, Musavada hmm? Veramani, and so on. So there are things we abstain from. But they're not things that you abstain from, they're not, they're not material and physical things. Because abstinence is a, a matter of your perspective. 
we abstain from wrong view. We abstain from our conduct that comes out of wrong view. You see, when we observe the five precepts, now I am taking a sidetrack, so please keep me on track. If I ask you, where did I stop? Bring me back here, okay? When we observe the five precepts, we know that these are, what are precepts, essentially? Precepts are training rules. That's why they're called sikka or shiksha. In fact, training. They are training rules. Like now, as bhikkhus, we have 227 training rules. On any, on, a, on any given day, you have to train yourself five training rules. When you're here, you get the eight training rules. As an anagarika, you get 10 training rules. As a Samanera monk, again, you get 10. When you raise yourself up to a high ordained monk, you get 227. Wonderful. <laughs> See, in none of these precepts, does it talk about the things that you have to do? It's all about things that you shouldn't do. Take Panatipata. It doesn't talk about rearing cattle, does it? It doesn't talk about giving life. It says, I don't take life. So it's an abstinence. You refrain. That is what you are, what you are training to. Then you have Adinnadana. It's not about giving. It's, not, it's about not taking. See, each of these training, training rules have a, have a not. Not a K-N-O-T not. Uh, I don't not. I don't. Right? I refrain. I abstain from. Then uh, I refrain from engaging in sensual or sexual, whichever way you want to put it, misconduct. Abrahamacharya is sensual misconduct, quite rightly. Meaning, I abstain from misusing the senses. Because a brahmachari is someone who experiences the world or perceives the world through the dhamma. So an abrahmachari, so that is why abrahmachari veramani, right? An abrahmachari is someone who perceives the world through maradhamma. So therefore, when they look at a sight, they see beauty. And they enjoy seeing beauty. But in a lay life, you know, you, you can't forbid people from doing so because... That is what lay life is about. You, you, you know, you, you, it's madness. Let, let me not go there. So abrahmacharya is that. Then you have musavad. Again, it's, it's about refraining from. Refraining from false speech. Refraining from slander. See, it's all about refraining. So really, you could observe the precepts and then just sit down on your backside and do nothing. Because you have refrained. There is nothing to do. The, all of it is not to do. Now, so, you know, when someone wishes to become a Buddhist, right, what do you normally do? Say, uh, you know, a, a person of a different faith, they wish, they wish to become a Buddhist. You might take them to the temple and meet them. So they set up a meeting with the chief monk, maybe, and say, sir, this young man, he wishes to become a Buddhist. So the, the bhikkhu will say, come forth, please sit down and chant after me. Right? And then they'll say the Buddhan Sarnang, Dhamman Sarnang, Sangan Sarnang, and all that. And then they'll say, Panatipata Veramani, Adinadana Veramani, Kame Sumichachara Veramani. So they give them the five precepts. Now at the end of the five precepts, this man is sat there waiting like, okay, now what do I do? So 
But the bhikkhu says at the end of the precepting, that's it, you are now a good Buddhist. Thank you for coming. Goodbye. So this, so this man, he sat there looking at the monk. Wait, hang on a second. I just became a Buddhist. What am I supposed to do now? And, the monk, and, and then the, the Swami Nasa will just have to say, no, I, I just told you what you, don't, what you shouldn't be doing. I just told you what you shouldn't be doing. So that's it. You're a Buddhist. Now, this man is going to wonder, yeah, well, I know what I shouldn't be doing, but what should I be doing? I'm now a Buddhist. Like, you know, when, when, you, when you graduate from university, right, you have things to do after that, don't you? If you graduate as, a, as an engineer, now you have to go and engineer things. If you graduate as a doctor, now you have to go and doctor things. You have to go and do scientist things and mathematician things and physicist things and whatever. You've got to go and do those things. When you graduate as a Buddhist, what must you do? Nothing. You must do nothing. So it would be fair for someone who has become a Buddhist to then ask, Sir, uh, you've just precepted me. I'm now a Buddhist. Uh, I'm waiting for whatever instruction you must give me to do next. So what do you do then? What would you advise someone who's just become a Buddhist and asks you, what should I do now? What is there to practice, sir? Because the precept is to abstain. You know, if, if I said, don't go outside, what do you practice? If I said, go outside, now you have to practice because you've got to have practice getting up, you've got to find the way, right? So you don't topple over things and you've got to find the path and you've got to keep your one step forward, the next foot forward, the other foot forward so you don't fall, find the door, open it gently, right? And then walk outside and close the door. Lots of things to practice. But when I've told you, don't go outside, just said that, don't go outside. What is there to practice? What do you practice as a Buddhist? Am I giving you an identity crisis? Jeez, I thought I was Buddhist and I had lots of things to do, but I'm just beginning to realize there's nothing for me to do. <laughs> Maybe I should consider going to the church or something, <laughs> try and find something to do with my life. What do you do as a Buddhist? It's just a matter of perception, just a matter of perspective. A Buddhist is not about what you do. A Buddhist is about how you see the world and how you see the things that happen in the world. In fact, it's about how you bear. A Buddhist is made in the mind. It is the mind that becomes a Buddhist. So you have a Buddhist mind. You don't have a Buddhist person. You don't have a Buddhist man or a woman. You don't have a Buddhist layperson and a Buddhist monk. Please take all of this in context. Otherwise, you will burn this place down. Right? There is no such thing as a Buddhist man or a Buddhist woman or a Buddhist monk or a Buddhist layperson. There's no such thing. A Buddhist is a Buddhist mind. It is the mind that is Buddhist. And what is so Buddhist about a mind? Perspective. Buddha is a perspective. It's about how you bear what you've always borne in a different way. So there's nothing for you to be doing any differently. 
So you'll ask me then, what about the merits you're always asking uh, us to do and going on about? Do this merits, do those merits, always do merits. What is that all about? Well, to be quite honest with you, merits are also Maradham. It is not Buddha Dhamma. Because merits also acquire karma. Now they help on your path to Nibbana, but merits alone does not get you to Nibbana. Because merits don't feature the Noble Eightfold Path. That is not merits, that is Kusala, not Ping. But that's not to say that you shouldn't be doing merits. In fact, you should be doing as many merits as you possibly can. But I think I talked about this last time we had this session. Oh, I don't know whether it was a talk I have given to the Swami Nahasis. Ah, oh, no, I think it was a talk I gave to the Anagarikas. One of the recently, someone asked me, Swami Nansa, you know, because they were helping me with something. And they helped me with some. Did I share this story with you? No, I don't think I, I shared it with this room. So they helped me out with something, and then they said, Swami Nansa, you know, we do all these merits so that one day I can earn enough merits and become an Anagarika, and then I can go on to attain Nibbana. So that is what, that is how they thought about it. And he asked me, I will be able to do that, won't I? So he's asking me. I said, not with that attitude, sir. You are never going to be able to do that. So he was shocked. He said, what? I've just done these merits. And I've made this resolve that by the power of these merits, as we do at the end of every sermon, by the power and the blessings of all these merits that we have acquired throughout the day, Hmm? May I be able to become an Anagarika? May I be able to attain Nibbana in this very life itself? So he said, this is all I think about when I do, do merits. Surely I'm doing the right thing. I said, no. Not if you take that approach, you're not doing the right thing. So he said, but I'm, I'm confused. So I what do you mean? I said, if you do, if you do these merits, if you did a meritorious deed and you expect for Nibbana to happen as a result of that at some point in the future, then it is not Nibbana that you are thinking of. Because Nibbana doesn't come in the future. And Nibbana is not a promise for the future. It's not a promise of the future. So then he asked me, so are you suggesting that we shouldn't be doing merits? Do we not need it for Nibbana? I said, yes, absolutely, you need merits for Nibbana. But then he said, but Swami said, what you said earlier does not match with what you're just saying now. Yes, because in your mind it doesn't. So hear me out. You got to do merits. And in those merits you got to see Nibbana. Don't expect a Nibbana to come to you as a result of those merits in the future. Because when you look at the future, the moment you look at a future, a future Nibbana, that is no longer Nibbana. Because Nibbana does not exist in the future. Neither did it exist in the past. Nibbana is how you bear this now. Now. In this moment. That is why, you know, I don't know whether they understood it or misunderstood it. They always talk about living in the moment. You know, you've heard of all this, living in the moment. You know, the now. Living in the now. Right? Some people believe that living in the now is just... Ignoring everything else in this world and just focus on this. 
that nothing else exists in this world. It's just a flower, just a flower. And then someone comes and says, excuse me, no, sorry, you don't exist. The flower exists, just the flower, just the flower, just the flower. <laughs> you know, you couldn't live like that, could you really? I mean, I, I don't mean to mock anyone, but you, know, you couldn't live like that. Imagine driving on, along the road. Um, I mean, could you do that? You know, there's a car in front of you, just the car, just the car, just the car. And now there's a truck coming from the other side. <laughs> and you're, the middle, you're in the middle of traffic. That Nibbana will come sooner than you expect. <laughs> Living in the moment is not just focusing on what's in front of you, ladies and gentlemen. It's about right view. It's about bearing it correctly. It's about having the right perspective on whatever is in the mind at that moment in time. If you see that, you've seen Nibbana. So if you say, I'm going to pluck these flowers, lay it on the altar and earn some merit so that one day I will attend Nibbana, you know, the flowers are screaming at you and asking you, you stupid, I'm giving you Nibbana. The flowers are screaming at you. See if you can hear Nibban. Did you hear that? That's the sound of Nibban. Can you hear it? The sound of Nibban. It's screaming at you. It's saying Nibban and Nibban and Nibban and Nibban. And you're like, yeah, yeah, tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. <laughs> in the future, one day, someday, in the era of the Maitri Buddha. That is not Nibbana. Nibbana is not a promise for tomorrow. Nibbana is here, Nibbana is now. Nibbana is how you bear the Rupa. It's your perspective. Samma, Ditti is everything. In the Noble Eightfold Path, ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing you need to do. What is Samma Vacha? Refraining from false speech, refraining from slander. Hmm? See, refraining from. What is Samma Kamanta? Refraining from taking the lives, refraining from stealing, refraining, see, all refraining from. So there is nothing really you need to do. But how does that refraining happen? It happens when you have right view. When you are right viewed, when you have the right perspective, that is Nibbana. How you see, whatever you see, is Nibbana. Did I ask you the question last time? Why is it, why is it that a Rahatan Mahase cannot steal? Did we talk about that here? Yes, I think we did. Why is it a Rahatan Mahase, an Arahant, why is it an Arahant cannot steal? You know, the, the, the concept of stealing does not he cannot conceive that. I mean, he knows what stealing is, and he'll even advise people don't steal. But it's not, it's not something that, that works inside his, his mind. You know, stealing is not a concept that is, that is compatible with an Arahant's mind. It's incompatible because in an Arahant's mind, there is no sense of belonging. What is theft after all? Taking something that doesn't belong to you or that belongs to somebody else without their permission. Right? For somebody else to be there, who else has to be there? You have to be there. 
So everything that is not you is something or somebody else. So to define somebody else, you have to define who first? You first. To define something else first, to define something else, you have to define yourself first. Because everybody else is an extension of the concept of self. So that is why in an Arahant's world, there is no such concept as stealing. In fact, if, you know, if an Arahant was born in an alien land, in an alien world somewhere, and they didn't have this idea of this concept of stealing, if they, if, if they brought an alien into this world, that, that alien, the Arahant, you know, and said, someone said, oh, you know, someone's stolen my watch. And the Arahant would be like, someone's done what to your watch? Stolen. What is stealing? An Arahant wouldn't even know. Because the concept of theft does not, does, is not compatible. It does not work with, without the sense of self. So all that I'm talking about is to give you the, impre- the idea, the, the notion that Nibbana is here and now, ladies and gentlemen. So don't go looking for Nibbana. It's here. It's how you bear this. That's why I was talking to the gentleman earlier who said, by doing these merits, I hope to attain Nibbana one day. I said, you know, keep at that and you never will. If you keep doing merits in the hope of attaining Nibbana, you never will. Because when is that Nibbana going to come? Sometime in the future. Nibbana is a timeless concept. So how can something timeless come to you in the future? Hmm? If you try and put Nibbana on a timeline, that is not Nibbana. If you can, then, you, then it's not Nibbana. So if you say, I'm going to attain Nibbana in the future, then it is not Nibbana you're, you're hoping to achieve. It's a timeless concept. Nibbana is perceiving this as it is. That is why the Buddha Dhamma is all about just perceiving things as they are. Seeing things as they are. That's why there's nothing to do as a Buddhist. It's just to realize. When you realize something, you realize it as it is, right? That is what realization is, to realize something as it is. It's not to conjure up something something else. It's not to, it's not to imagine something. The imagination and realization are two different things, aren't they? When you imagine, you have to create something, right? Your wild imaginations. But when you realize it, you don't have to create something. You just have to see what it is. So, Samma. Ignorance and attachment is what is referred to as Sang in Pali. The combination of ignorance and attachment gives, gives rise to what? The notion of a self, right? And, se- well, separation and all that. In other words, wherever there is Sang, you misperceive this. You don't see it as it is. So when you, when you are free from ignorance and attachment, when the mind is free from ignorance and attachment, then the mind no longer wishes to separate this or to experience a self or to see this as a separate object. Now, I don't mean this physically. I'm physically, this is a separate object to this, for instance, right? What I'm talking about the sense of separation. We'll talk about it further. So what is Sangma then? When ignorance and attachment are removed from the mind, right? Or when ignorance and attachment are taken out of the picture, now all there is is wisdom. It's like when, you know, to take out darkness, all you have to do is 
shine some light. And where there is light, there is no darkness. You can't, you know, the two are mutually exclusive. So, so when, when, the, when the Buddha Dhamma comes into the mind, when the Buddha Dhamma comes into the mind, that is a teaching on how to actually see the Rupa or the Dhamma. So Anicca, Dukkha and Anatta. That is the Buddha part. See the word Buddha, the word Buddha itself means no separation. That is what Buddha means. It means no separation. Because Bhava is separation. Bhava is the is the step just before separation happens, just, just before you perceive separation. So bhava is the, is the product. Right before the mind experiences separation, it's, it's, the, it's the platform on which the mind steps immediately before it experiences separation. So if that is bhava, then to eradicate that is buddha. To eliminate that is Buddha. Therefore, with Buddha, you see the Dhamma. That is Buddha Dhamma. So that is right perspective. That is right view. Sammaditi. Sangma, because what, what causes Bhava then? Sang. Ignorance and attachment causes Bhava. Ignorance and attachment causes, causes separation. It causes the clinging that we've been talking about. So, when ignorance and attachment are eradicated, now all that all that is left is dhamma. This has the characteristic of anicca. The Buddha Dhamma teaches us. See, the whole point here is, ladies and gentlemen, you know, we we see the Buddha Dhamma as as a as a as a philosophy. Right? We, we, we think of it as a, as a subject. We think of it as a, as, a, you know, as a school of thought, for instance. Right? But really what Buddha Dhamma is, is simply, you know, how, 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 do you, how do you read this? How do you, it's, it's like a language. The Buddha Dhamma is a language. You know, we use language to express ideas, don't we? Right? So we, you know, you, you could call this a flower. In another language, you would call it something else. Right? So this idea, when people want to communicate this idea without actually showing the, the object, you say, Swami Nuhasai had a flower in his hand. Now, if you, the one person in this room saw me with a, with a flower in my hand, that person can pass that message on to others without actually showing a picture of this and say, Swami Nuhasai had a flower in their hand. So it's, it's used to convey an idea, okay? What the Buddha Dhamma is, is also a language. The Buddha Dhamma is the language of the Dhamma. You know, it is what all things speak. I don't know. <laughs> this makes sense to me. I don't know if it's making sense to you. It makes perfect sense to me. I'm trying my best to try and help make this make 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 sense out of this to you. It's what all things speak. You know, the Chinese they speak Mandarin. The English they speak English. Right? The Spanish speaks Spanish. All things speak 
Buddha Dhamma. Can you hear it? If you, if you can look at this through right view, through Samaditti, you will hear it. You will hear Anicca. You will hear Anatta. You will hear the truth. Because they speak out loud. Here's the truth. Here's Nibbana. Can you hear it? To hear it, you have to understand the language. Because you see, how do you know when someone speaks in, say, Hindi, for instance? How do you know when someone speaks in Hindi? You need to know the language, right? At least you must have heard the language and you must have heard someone say, oh, that's Hindi. That's when you know it's Hindi. So, unless you've, you've heard the Buddha's teaching, So, what is the Buddha's speech? What is the Buddha's language? Anicca, Dukkha and Anatta. That is his speech. That is his, that is his language. The Buddha's language is Anicca, Dukkha and Anatta. If you understand that language, now whenever this speaks, you hear it. But if you don't understand that language, now you see flower, a beautiful flower, a yellow flower. That is what everyone hears because they understand the Mara language, which is Nitya, Sukha, and Atta. Is this another chapter I should regret opening? You see, it's not just the Swami Nuhase carrying the flower, so the whole thing is a manifestation, right? Now, but to perceive that it's a manifestation, you need to be able to see something I'm not showing you. In other words, your mind's eye should be able to see what, what's going on here. Because through your physical eye, all you're seeing is you see the Swami Nuhansa, you see the flower. But through your wisdom eye, through prajna, right? Because prajna is the faculty that opens up when, when you begin to learn or when you begin to understand the Buddha's language. You know, it opens a gate. Anicca and Anatta opens a gate. The understanding of Anicca and Anatta opens a gate. And through that gate, you begin to see a dimension that you've never seen before. It's a whole new dimension. If you've, how many of you watched the film Matrix? Okay. I didn't expect the Anagarika Mahatmas to put their hands up. So if you watch the film, The Matrix, right, you, it's all right if you haven't watched it, but I'll, I'll just tell you what happens in the end. You know, there's this person called Neo, right? And so this guy, he realizes that he's in a computer. That the whole world is just a virtual reality, but actually it's just zeros and ones. So once he comes to that realization, all he sees is zeros and ones. So wherever he looks, he sees zeros and ones. So he sees people. He, or what he used to see as people, now he sees as zeros and ones because it's just a computer, code. It's just code. Everything is just code in, in, that, in that film, right? Now, what you and I would see as a flower or a man holding a flower, if you ask Neo, he sees zeros and ones because he begins to read the world in a different language. So, a new portal has opened up for him through which 
he sees the world in a very different dimension. A dimension that, is, that has not been visible to him until he learned the fact that all of this was just code. So, you know, that realization opens up his wisdom. And that's an analogy, I think, I think someone who's, who, whoever made that film, the script, the directors, you know, they must have had some understanding, whatever little it might be of maybe some, some of the things we talk about. But I, I can't vouch for any of that. Maybe, may not be. But the whole point is, once you begin to understand the world through Anichaduka and Anatta, the whole world, a whole portal opens up, ladies and gentlemen. You, you begin to see this in a whole new dimension. Do you see the world as Anichaduka and Anatta? Do you see this as a manifestation? All of this as a manifestation? Do you see that there is no Swaminhanse here holding a flower? Do you see that all there is is just causes? Just holding the whole world up together every moment. Yeah, the, the, you know, it's like, the, it's like the whole world is simply causes manifesting as results every moment. To be able to see the world in, in that way, through that lens, you need to have you need to have picked up that Buddha Dhamma. Because it is the Buddha Dhamma that is the language that all things speak. Now, you know, my, when I was very young, my... I think this story I shared with you, I had one of my grandmothers, when he was very young, she used to tell me that, you know, in the time of the Buddha, she used to say, you know, all things spoke. She said the trees used to speak. The rocks used to speak. Animals used to speak. And I said, what rubbish. You and your superstitious stuff. Come out of it. This is the 21st century. Huh? You old lady, what do you know? That's what I used to tell her. But now I realize she was, trying, she was perhaps trying to tell me something, at least something that she'd heard from someone. Now I know she, she never went and spoke to trees, but she, she must have heard it from someone. Perhaps, you know, her grandmother told her, you know, in the time of the Buddha, everything used to speak. The rocks used to speak. The trees used to speak. The stars used to speak. And this is true. Now I understand what she meant. You know, to me, this speaks. It speaks out loud. It says, Nibbana, Nibbana, Nibbana. <laughs> can you hear it? I can hear it loud and clear. It's saying, Nibbana, Nibbana, Nibbana. <laughs> It's saying Nibbana. Can you hear it? So, you know, when you hear that, where do you have to go to find Nibbana? It's everywhere. So it's not just this. This is saying Nibbana, Nibbana, Nibbana. So is this, and so is this, so is this. Everything is just calling out Nibbana. That is the Buddha Dhamma. So all things speak. All things speak the Buddha Dhamma. Now, let me try and explain to you what I mean by this, because I was it's probably just sounding like a gobbledygook <laughs> to, to some of you, right? What do I mean by this? Now, you know, it's one thing to say, I can hear it, but it's another thing to help you to be able to see it and hear it also, right? So that's the whole point of us coming here. You need to understand what's really going on here. Okay, the world that you see, the world that you perceive is not the real world. You're seeing a make-believe world. The world that you see is fake. It's not the real world. 
But this fakeness is not a, a problem in the outside. It's your projection of a fake world onto reality that makes the world seem as it is today. So what I, what I need you to do is through the course of these talks, through your understanding, I need you to try and stop projecting this nonsense into the outside world. Once you stop projecting this nonsense, this, this fantasy, you then begin to see the world as it is. So what is the world at, as it is? Because for you to stop projecting that, you need to realize that the projection that you are making is an absolute nonsense. So how, how, do, we, how do we perceive that then? What is the mind? The mind is simply an instrument. We've talked about this in the past. The mind is an instrument to mind. Now, the other day, someone had asked a question. Is the mind, you know, the job of the mind separation or is it just minding? And a very good question that was. The mind's job is to mind manifestations, not to perceive separations. Because there are no separations out there. All there are are manifestations. What is a manifestation then? Now, let me give you a simple example of this. Well, it's simple to me and I hope it will be simple to you as well. I'm going to put a number up on the board, right? So here, this is, um, okay. What number is this? Hmm? 12. What number is this? Cannot be. It can't be 123 because it's got to be 12, 3, right? See, for 12 to become 3, how many increments would you normally need? See, 12 doesn't become 123 just like that. First it's got to be 13, then it's got to be 14, and then it's got to be 15 and 16 and 17. Did you see all that happening here? How then did I, could I just put one number up on the board and you, you know, out of nowhere, 12 became 123? How is that possible? Because if, if it was to become 123, you've got to go up one by one. How is that possible? Yeah, of course, because this is a manifestation. Just as 12 was a manifestation. You see, now when you put that number 3 here, okay, now initially, this was in the tens place, wasn't it? This was in the ones place. Hmm? Basic maths. But as soon as you put number 3 here, now what happens? This goes to the tens place, this goes to the hundreds place, and this becomes the ones place. All of that was the effect of just one number written at the end of that. Now, did I bring 123 of something in here? If I were to do that, I had to bring in one by one. I didn't bring it here. But in your mind, you perceive this as 123. If I took that off again, now again you'll say 12. But did I decrement it one by one? I shouldn't, I mean, technically I shouldn't be able to do that, should I? Like make such massive changes just like that? Because a change should be incremental, right? Step by step, piece by piece. But I can just, just you know, just throw a number in there, in there like that, and you completely get a very different picture. 
This is possible, ladies and gentlemen, because of the, the concept of manifestation. When these causes combine, something manifests in your mind. That manifestation, now, now bear with me, right? That manifestation, you know, when three comes in here, the three didn't join the one and two. It seems like three just get great, three just, uh, erase it again. Now there's one and two, they're having a party. Three just gate crash the party. That is how you think it is, but that's not how it is. When this three came here, one, two, and three, they have an equal place in this, in this picture. So it's not like three joined one and two. When three came in here, one came again, two came again, and three came again, because now it has to give you a completely different manifestation. Another example of that would be, we'll come back to this. If I ask you to bring me a cup of tea, okay? First of all, you take the cup and into which you will add, let's say, a tea bag. And you'll add some hot water, okay? So tea bag and hot water, what do you have? You have a tea. Now in, in Sri Lanka, you call it kata, right? You don't even call it plain tea. It's just tea. When you add sugar to this, now we call it a, a plain tea, right? Now you just, you, you just add sugar to it. This concept of I've added sugar to, I don't know, what do you call a kahata? Is there, is there a word for that? A black tea, thank you, madam. So when you add sugar to a black tea, this is what we're actually doing. There's a cup of black tea and you add sugar to it. Right? We get this feeling, we, we perceive this in, in, in entirely the wrong way. It is not sugar being added to black tea to give you a plain tea. In the moment where sugar and black tea come together, they have an equal place. But it, it seems like black tea was there first and sugar just came and joined later. That is not how it is. Because then it seems like black tea has precedence and it has, it has preference, it has you know, prefer, a preferential place because it was there first. It was there first and the sugar came later. That's not what happened here. To make a plain tea, it's not you adding sugar to a black tea, although it seems like that is what you're doing. If I asked you how do you make a plain tea, what would you say? First you get the black tea and then you add sugar. So you tell me that sugar joined the party. That black tea was already there. Let's take this one step further. Right now we want to make a cup of milk tea. Right? So what do you add next? You add milk. So if I ask you how do you make milk tea, here's what you'll tell me. We take a cup of plain tea and then we add milk. Wrong. That's not how you make milk tea. Because then it gives this impression that the plain tea was there first. And then milk came later. That is not how a milk tea is born. A milk tea is born when water, the, the tea, the sugar, and the milk, they all come together at the same time. 
It's so much so that you could even think it of it. In, you could even think of it like this. When it's time to add the milk, the sugar goes back, the tea bag goes back out, the water goes back out, and then when it's time for the milk to come, they all come back in again. Now you now you understand that they all have equal place, right? But if you think that it was the plain tea to which you add the milk, then it feels like the plain tea was there first and the milk came in later. But that's not what happens. What's going on is when the milk, when you want a milk tea, and you think that what you're doing is adding milk tea to a cup of plain tea, what's really happening is all of those ingredients are coming together again as if they've never been there before. So it's not that one changes into another. Everything is born new. Every single time. That is the concept of manifestation. Everything is born brand new. Every single time. You've never added anything to something and made it something else. Because then it becomes a, a time concept. You can't be timeless like that. Because if you... If you, if you you know, if you talk about, I mean, making this, say we started, how long does it take you to make a cup of milk tea? Say, uh, 10 minutes or 5 minutes, say, okay? Take 5 minutes to make a cup of tea. At minute 1, or at say minute 2 minutes, we've got some boiled water. And into which you put the tea bag. Okay, so this is at 2 minutes. In the third minute, so you've left it to brew for a little bit, and now you add sugar. So now you can take the tea bag out and you add the sugar. When did this happen? At the third minute. Okay. And then in the fourth minute, now there's sugar in here. What you do is you add milk. This is the fourth minute. Ah, let's put uh, one minute to boil the water. Hmm? So this is boiling water. One minute to boil the water, two minutes to brew. Next minute you add the sugar and so that's one, two minutes here, three, four, and this one, uh, five minutes. And now you've got, oh sorry, wait, this is three minutes here, four here, and five. Okay, there you go. So now you have a cup of milk tea. Now you have a story to tell that happened over a course of five minutes. So then I can ask you, what happened? What happened in the first minute? You can tell me that the water boiled in the first minute. Then I ask you what happened at minute two. So you'll say, at minute two we dip the tea bag into the water and we let it brew for two minutes. See now you're relating a series of events but on the timeline, on a time axis, so on a time dimension. You brought a time dimension into this. So then you can say, in the fourth minute we added sugar to an existing tea. Yeah, the black tea was there at the fourth minute, but we added sugar to 
to what? A black tea. So that happened at the fourth minute. So something that had come from one from zero to four minutes, you now changed by adding sugar to it. And what did you do to it in the fifth minute? You added milk. So something that had come on a journey from zero to four minutes, at the fifth minute, you added, you added milk. So you see, this is what we experience in the world that we live. I mean, this is how you would make a cup of tea. But live one thing, but understand something else is what we need to do. This is, of course, this is how we make a cup of tea, right? But how a cup of tea is made is not this. This is how you make it, but this is not how it's made. Does that make sense? Am I saying the same thing just differently? <laughs> this is how you would make a cup of tea, but this is not how a cup of tea is made. How is a cup of tea made? When it's time to be tea, as in milk tea, that has tea, sugar and milk, and that moment, ladies and gentlemen, all of these factors must combine together for the very first time. It's not that you added milk to a tea that had sugar in it. Because if that were the case, then you're changing a fixed thing. We can't talk about change in this world because nothing changes. Why doesn't anything change? Yes, because there is nothing to change. Nothing changes. Nothing goes from one to another. What happens is, whenever there is something, the causes for that something have come together in that moment. That is why it's called a manifestation. When a cup of tea is a cup of tea, the tea, the sugar and the milk have come together in that moment. When it was just black tea, the tea and the water came together in that moment. When it was just a plain tea, the tea, the water and the sugar came together in that moment. It's not that a black tea changed to a plain tea and a plain tea changed to a milk tea because it's just a manifestation. Now, this is what you see, but what you should bear is Buddha Dhamma. What is bearing Buddha Dhamma? Can you see the Anicca here? It's screaming out Nibbana. See, I'm explaining to you the principle of Anicca through the process of making a cup of tea. So when you make that cup of tea next time, Try and perceive the anicca nature of it. You will be doing what you've always been doing. Nothing changes there. Just perceive it differently. That is why as a Buddhist there's nothing to do. There's only realization to happen. There's nothing to do. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to use your arms and your legs to do anything. You just have to perceive. How is it that you can eat a carrot and tomorrow it becomes your nose? Because it's just an arrangement, right? But that arrangement happens, you know, it's not like the carrot became the nose. That's not what happened. A carrot is simply an arrangement of elements. Like the number 123 is an arrangement. Right? What is the number 12? It's an arrangement. Now, if this 123, I, I, I took the one off and put it at the end, Different arrangement. Remember we used to do this with the Scrabble letters? Right? We, we used to make words with Scrabble. And I asked you, what is this word? And you 
you you told me yes this is whatever word it was and then by just changing one letter you we made it a completely different word that had no bearing or resemblance to the previous word a completely different word a completely different word that gives you a completely different picture a completely different idea it's a very different concept we talked about antelopes remember you have the ant and you have elope what is an antelope an ant that elopes no it's a it's a completely different conception so now you see in the in the way that you understand this can you understand that concept of ant and elope you know to elope is to run away right right an ant is an ant but when you put these two things together is it an ant eloping no so when this and this come together would you not agree that these two things are coming together brand new it's not this adding on to this is this an ant changing into antelope it's not these two things becoming one it's a very different creature it's a it's a whole new thing the ant be- didn't become elope and the elope didn't become antelope it's a whole new thing in the same way it wasn't a plain tea that became a milk tea it's a whole new thing now you know you are what you eat right so but what you ate came from the organic matter that decomposed from something else that existed previously maybe it was your ancestors right maybe it was you know some a bear in the jungle it died and where it died grew an apple tree and you ate the apple what are you now bear you're not because then you'd be every, like almost everything like you'll be a bear a chimpanzee right? <laughs> an armadillo right you'd be you'd be a lot of everything wouldn't you but you would never be able to identify yourself as a human being but you know if you studied the anatomy of a of a chimpanzee if you studied the anatomy of a of a bear and yours you know you're you'd be worlds apart you're a human being So when that configuration changes when the arrangement changes it's a completely different setup a completely different setup it's not that one changes to another this whole concept of one changing to another we perceive ladies and gentlemen because we perceive maradhamma not buddha dhamma in other words it's our lack of understanding of anicca that makes us see the world as something that changes and when we talk about change we always talk about impermanence of course because what is impermanence then change nothing is <laughs> nothing is nothing remains everything changes so the concept of impermanence is is not valid when we talk about anicca here impermanence would be true if there were things that changed but there is nothing to change so therefore the concept of impermanence is not compatible with the concept of anicca they are very two different things completely different things that is that is why we don't talk a lot about impermanence we are not talking because to be talking about permanence or to talk about impermanence you're talking about something that changes but where is the thing that changed where is the thing that changed nothing there is no thing to change what there is is simply a manifestation and a manifestation is is just causes that are in a particular arrangement 
That's what a manifestation is. It causes in a particular arrangement. And that arrangement is just an arrangement in that moment. The whole manifestation is held together by those causes. Take out the causes, you have no manifestation left. Remember the circle that we ask people to stand in line? Or not in line, rather, together? Remember this? They're all blindfolded. And you ask them to come and stand in a circle. Well, you, they wouldn't know what a circle is, but because they're blindfolded, you'd bring them by their hands and you'd stand them here like this. Right? They're all blindfolded. So you, you take a few people, ask them to stand in a circle. No, you don't ask them to stand in a circle, beg your pardon. You blindfold them and you bring them by their hand and you, you stand them there in their respective places. Now, do they know that they're stood in a circle? Of course they don't. But don't you see a circle? You see a circle because that circle is a manifestation. It is held together by the causes. Meaning there is no circle here. There is no circle that is not a manifestation. The only circle there is, is a manifested circle. Not a fixed circle. It's not an entity. That is why if they walked away, you wouldn't have the circle anymore. If there was a circle here, the circle that you perceive, right? The circle that you perceive, if it was here, you could now ask them to leave and the circle would still be there. So the very impression that you get is purely the causes presenting themselves in a certain arrangement and that is what you perceive as whatever you perceive. That is what a manifestation is. This is the concept of anicca. If this is the concept of anicca, then how can you break this circle? Because there is no circle to break. How can this decay? Because there is no circle to decay. So how can we talk about death and disease and decay? When, when there is nothing to die, when there is nothing to decay. So the whole concept of death and disease and decay I mean, by disease, what they're talking about is deterioration rather than, you know, disease of the body, right? They're not talking about a cold or a headache. They're talking about deterioration. That is vyadi. Deterioration. So, how can we talk about decay, deterioration, and death, right, when such a thing does not exist? That is why only when jati happens, can we talk about death, disease, and decay? What is jati? Jati is what is happening in your mind right now when you see this circle. And you see it as an existing circle. If you see it as an existing circle, which is not manifested by the causes, that is when jati is happening in your mind. But I think in this example, you are beginning to make sense. You know, you know, yes, there is no circle, but there is a circle. Now, if I ask you the question, is there no circle here? You'd have to say, yes, there is. Then I ask you, is there a circle here? Then you say, no, there is no circle here. So you see, you can't, ask, uh, you can't answer that question by asking it, it to you in, in those words. You'd have, to, you'd have to answer that question and tell me, so I mean, you're asking the wrong question. Because if you ask me, is there a circle here? The answer is yes and no at the same time. Here's a better question to ask. How is it that I perceive a circle? Now that question has an answer. 
That question has a very valid answer. It is not a subjective answer. It's an objective answer. How do I perceive a circle? That can be explained. But if you ask me, is there a circle? It's yes and no at the same time. Yes, there is a circle and there is not a circle at the same time. So here we need to try to understand this, this whole concept of anicca. This is the Buddha Dhamma. But the Buddha Dhamma is nothing other than this gentleman trying, you know, understanding the world that we live in. That is why, as Buddhists, there is nothing to do other than realizing. Can you see Nibbana here? I mean, the whole point of learning the Dhamma is to be able to perceive Nibbana in everyday life. If you have to go to the temple to attain Nibbana, then that is not a temple that is worth going to. If someone says you have to come here to attain Nibbana, then that is, that is not a place that's worth going to. You can come here to learn the language of Nibbana. You can come here to learn the language of the Buddha. But Nibbana you have to see in everyday things, in everyday objects. Now, this is a circle. Think of your, your body, for instance. Like this package that you're most familiar with. When you stand in front of a mirror and you look at yourself, or even now if you just, <clears throat> if you can just imagine, you know, your body as it is. All you are, are just parts together. Now you're just lots of pieces put together in a particular arrangement. That arrangement is also important. In fact, if we reconfigured you, you know, we'd probably say that is not a human, that is somebody else, something else. Because if I ask you to draw a human being, you'd, you'd draw something like this. What if you do it something like this? Is that a human? No, but you could draw it like that, couldn't you? Like this is the body, head, hands, or arms, and legs. The same stuff, but rearranged. If you saw, if you saw someone like that, Huh? It would scare the living daylights out of you, wouldn't it? You'd say that would be creepy. Because it doesn't fit with your model of a human. In your world, a human has to be some, this configuration. So see how, how, how much the configuration matters? The arrangement matters? Isn't that arrangement? So the, the parts and the arrangement together. So these parts, you know, there's one part, two, three, four, five, six put it very simply, these six causes and the way in which, in which it is arranged are the causes that give you the impression that there's a human being here. If we were to change one of these causes, right, if we took away, like, you know, here you have all six causes, but just in a different arrangement. Now you'll say that's not a human being. You'll say that's some kind of weird animal. This is because in your mind, ladies and gentlemen, this is fixed. This arrangement is fixed. This is what you identify as a human being. You expect to see this. Because you don't see this as anicca. You don't see this as simply parts together to manifest a structure, a human structure. Because you don't see it that way, this scares you. 
this appeals to you. So now you need to understand why things scare you then. Why do, why, why, do, why do things scare you? Why do you get scared? It's because that structure you are scared of. I mean, you know, some, some people are scared of snakes, right? Or say spiders. What, what is a spider made of that is not in you? Hmm? A spider is made of what? Proteins. And other various other elements, right? Carbons and hydrogens and oxygens and nitrogens and so on, right? So what are you made of? The same stuff. What is a snake made of? The same stuff, right? But when you see a snake, right, you feel that this is not you, right? You feel that this is a complete, a very different creature to yourself. When you see a spider, you see it as a very different creature to yourself, so much so that it actually scares you. Even if we said that this, 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 this snake is not poisonous, it's a harmless snake. Right? If I put that snake somewhere where you are, even if I was to promise you it's a harmless snake, and this spider is a harmless spider, it's not poisonous, not venomous. Right? Some people are still scared. Why scared? Is it not the same stuff that you're made of? So why does it scare you then? <clears throat> it scares you because you don't see it as a manifestation. That's why it scares you. In fact, what do you think is more dangerous? A spider or a human being? When was the last time a spider lied to you? Or broke your heart? When was the last time a snake stole something that belonged to you? Has it ever happened? No. So who should we be scared of more? Another human being, right? But that is not what scares you. You're scared of spiders. You're scared of spiders because you don't see it as a manifestation. Sometimes you see, you know, those call them creepy crawlies, right? Little worms and things like that. Centipedes. Now, as we live in the, in the middle of a, a, a forest, you know, those things are everywhere. But sometimes, you know, we receive sometimes young men, women, children, so on from other countries, and they come and spend some time here. And, you know, they are dead scared because they don't, they've never seen these things. And they sometimes they see a spider and, oh my God, oh my God, I want to go back. <laughs> so we help. All you got to do is See that it's a manifestation. There are no, you know, there is no such thing as a fixed spider. It's just a manifestation because you're made of the same stuff that a spider is made of. You're made of the same stuff as a snake is made of. You're made of the same stuff, uh, you know, a, a bear is made of, a lion is made of, a leopard is made of, a monkey is made of. I think that you will agree. <laughs> you are all made of the same stuff. It's just a different arrangement. But when we don't see it as just a different arrangement, we see them as fixed things, as separate things. And then we, either we are either attracted to them or we repel them. We like them or we dislike them. To both like and dislike, you need to be able to separate things. It is only through moha you get raga and you get dvesha. Without the moha part, which is the 
isolating part, which is the separating part, you can't either attach or despise. You can't do either. So the whole you know, the whole thing here, the whole the whole picture here is to try and get a greater grasp of this concept of anicca, ladies and gentlemen. And through anicca, you begin to realize the anatta nature, which is that none of this is none of this is separable. It's all just one. You know, we're all we're all just one thing, just held together by energy. That is what this is. The fact that you are the way you are is because of energy. Energy is just holding the parts that you are in that in that shape in that formation. Add a bit of energy, and sometimes you'll get blisters. You get boils. Take out some of that energy, you know, you'll fall dead. And or an arm breaks off. It's just energy that keeps you in this in this form. Can you begin to see yourself in the in those terms? It has to come through practice. But before you begin to practice, of course, you must accept that this is the truth. Not because I say so, but because it is the truth. Once you begin to see this, you will find the answers to, you know, I believe that phobias can be healed by using this Dhamma. Some people have fear of, you know, scared of spiders, arachnophobias, and you have fear of people scared of empty spaces, claustrophobias, you know, you have all sorts of phobias. These are all, you know, mental issues and people suffer unnecessarily. You don't need to suffer. If, all, if you can see it just as a manifestation, then there is nothing to get into conflict with. So here lies the answers to, as far as I understand, all mental issues, all mental suffering, we have the answer. All of this is because people, in the mind, not people, the mind separates configurations, arrangements, but then they, after they do that, they see something more than a manifestation. They see a fixed entity. And in seeing that entity, now you have a relationship with that entity. And that relationship is either one of love or one of hate. Otherwise, you know, how is it that you can love one person but hate another person? When, if they're all made of the same stuff, I mean, just take this for a second, right? Now, take a family where you have siblings, okay? Say, three siblings, all from the same mother, all from the same father, okay? So there are, say, two brothers and a sister. This sister, she loves one brother, but she hates the other brother. And they all made of the same stuff. Didn't they all eat from the same home, from the same pot? Was it not the same mother who, who fed them all? Hmm? Didn't they, aren't they all made of the same DNA? Huh? So, so when all of that is so similar, why then do you sometimes passionately love something but passionately hate something else? Because you see something beyond the manifestation. Now you, you might say, well, Swaminas, it's because of their temperaments. You know, some of them, they're not kind. They're not, they don't, they don't, I don't see eye to eye because they're not, they're not like me. They're not, they don't, they're not nice people. That's why I don't like my brother, you might say. Again, that's because, now we talked about matter. The mind is the same. Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, and Vijnana. 
If you again separate Vedana, if you separate, say, kindness as a very different and separate configuration to, or more than a configuration, if you see that as a fixed, fixed thing, right? Kindness. So if say, now here we've been talking about matter, let's talk about the mind for a second, because that is, that is what we are, mind and matter. In kindness, we don't have Rupa, right? We're talking about Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, and Vinaya. So, uh, take Vedana, and uh, I'll, I'll give you the code, okay? So, I'm going to give you the 3, a 2, 2, and a 1. Okay? This is how kindness is perceived. So, when the mind has 3 of this, 2 of this, 2 of this, as in, not 3 Vedanas, but what I mean is, it's just a code. Okay? This Vedana on a setting of 3. Not three Vedanas, but three, three is the setting. Okay? And, and a two setting on a Sanya, two on a Sankara and one on a Vinyana. That is perceived as kindness. So one feels kind. Right? They, they begin to expound kindness when this is the setting on these, on these elements. Let's take, uh, you might say someone is uh, jealous. That would be... Uh, Two, three, three, two. This is jealousy. So, when when a mind has two on the setting of Vedana, three on the setting of Sanya, three on Sankara, and two on Vinyana, okay, then that mind is a mind that is sensing jealous, jealousy at that at that moment. If you if you see these two things as very separate things, if you see these two things as, as fixed things, now you will say, I like the person who is kind, but I don't like the person who is, who is jealous. I don't like jealousy, but I like kindness. My brother is jealous of me, so I don't like him. Whereas my sister, she's very kind, so I like her. What, we, what, what the mind does through ignorance and attachment is, it gives identity to this combination. It gives an identity to that combination. That's why you say, he is jealous and she is kind. In other words, just jealousy, you say belongs to him and the kindness belongs to her. Who does jealousy and kindness belong to? No one. It is not something that belongs to anybody. If you are kind, can't I also be kind? Should I ask your permission for that? Hmm? Do I need your permission to be kind? Well, if you're the one who's kind, and if kindness is all yours, then I should have your permission to be kind, shouldn't I? I should submit a form, a kindness request form. <laughs> Please, can I be kind for a day? Don't need to do that. Don't need to do that because it doesn't belong to anybody. But if I had to take your car, then I had to submit a form and you had to approve and I had to take your car, right? But here, this is just the configuration of the mind at that moment. When 3, 2, 2 and 1 are the settings on Vedana, Sanya, Sankara and Vinyana, what we perceive through them is kindness. In fact, whatever we perceive, we give them the label kindness. Because the characteristics of that, of that mind is one which empathizes which shares what they have with others. You know, so, you know, how does this become this then? 
See, I'm, what I'm asking you really is, how did the Bodhisattva become a Buddha? How does, it, how does an evil person become a good person? If you don't see it in these, in these terms, folks, you will, you will label people as bad people and good people. You will put them into boxes and shut the lid so that they can never get out of them. And sometimes you might even do it yourself. That's the worst thing. I'm a, bad, I'm a bad person. Look at all the bad things I've done. Look at all the terrible things I've done. How can I ever be a good person? I've always been so jealous of my siblings. I've been jealous of my friends. I've been jealous of other people. I've been jealous of my co-workers. I'm just such a terrible person. I'm just a jealous person, you know. I'm just a bad person, you know. You might find yourself saying that to yourself. Because apparently this jealousy belongs to you. Who gave you the right to own it? What's going on is you are personifying this configuration. You are saying this is a person. This is a sentient being. You are in fact animating it. Giving it life. You are giving this life and saying this is a sentient being. This is Sukha. This is a being. It's not a being. It's just a setting. A setting that could just as well have been this. It's just a change of settings. You know, like when you turn a knob and you turn, turn, turn the volumes or maybe the settings on a, say, uh, a mixer. If you've seen an audio mixer, right? You change the treble, you set the bass settings, you set the, the mid settings, right? You, you set the echo and so on. Nothing is fixed. So how does a jealous person become a kind person then? We need to figure out first what kindness is. What is kindness then? It's 3221. What is jealousy? 2332. Right? Now what we need to do is, if this is the mind, as this is the mind, we just need to send more of these through it. We just need to pump more of these through the mind and that will eventually change this to this. In fact, that is also wrong. It doesn't change this to this. What happens is, this begins to manifest and this stops manifesting. So it's not this that becomes this, but it's just this begins, begins to manifest. So the more times you send three, two, two, one. How, how do you make a kind person? By being what to them? Yeah, by being kind to them. Because when you're kind to, a kind, when you're kind to an evil person, Right? I mean, you can't, you can't make someone a kind person by being evil to them, right? Why is that so? Why do they say kindness begets kindness? And evil begets evil. Violence begets violence. Why so? Because whatever passes through the mind, that is what the mind begins to absorb. Right? As, as, it, as it rubs past the mind, right, those settings... I have to use the word change, but actually they don't change. That is what they begin to manifest. So as you start pumping 3, 2, 2, 1 through the mind, right, 2 doesn't become, 2 doesn't transform to 3. It stops being 2 and it starts being 3. Remember, 23, right? 12 didn't become 123. Here's what happened. 
two stopped being two and it started being 20. That's what happened. Now does that make sense? One stopped being one. Or uh, it was what? In the tens place, right? Ten stopped being ten and started becoming a hundred. It became a hundred. This was not there. And it came into the picture. So you see, each of them had to stop doing what they're doing and start doing something completely different. That's why I say each of them have an equal part to play in the manifestation. That is why this didn't change to this. 12 didn't change to 123. It was a completely different arrangement. So you see here, when 3221 passes through the mind, in other words, the words that we use, you know, to be kind, we, we, kindness begets kindness. So when we are kind to someone who is unkind, okay, the words have the, the desired effect on the mind. So what was two earlier stops being two and now it starts being three. What was three earlier stops being three and starts becoming two. What was three earlier stops and the same thing, same thing happens. Two stops being two and it becomes one. So when this happens, now you say, oh, he used to be quite jealous, but now he's very kind. So the jealous man has become the kind man. Is that so? No, that never happened. That's not what happened. When there were, when there were the conditions for jealousy, jealousy manifested. When there were the conditions for kindness, kindness manifested. It's not one became the other. So every time someone is something, as in every time there's, an, there's a temperament, it is always the causes that manifest that temperament. That's all there is. This is the, this is the, this is the, the principle of anicca. So these you know, various examples I'm bringing here, and uh, stories and analogies, to help you to grasp this concept of anicca, ladies and gentlemen. Because once you grasp this concept of anicca, you, you, you know, you'll, stop, you'll stop putting people into boxes. Stereotyping is a big problem amongst people in social circles and communities, right? People label people. You know, this guy, he's a bad guy. Don't associate him. There are no bad people. Because when you say someone's a bad person, then you, you, you stereotype them, you, you box them up, you put them, into a, you, you put them into, the, into a corner and say, that's a bad person, you know, just don't associate him. Don't, don't get him involved. Isn't this how sometimes you know you're friends with people and then something happens and then you you know you stop being friends with them? You fall out. And sometimes if you fall out with someone, you never give them a second chance. Why don't you give them a second chance? Because you think they're fixed. In other words, their evilness is fixed. They're, they were born like that, they're gonna die like that, they're gonna die evil. It, how unfair is that? And you're not doing yourself any service by doing that. I mean, isn't you, aren't you the best example of that? That you can change? With the right association, anything can happen. Aren't you the best example of that? You know, all of you here, you know, this was not the journey that you were bound for. Or that you thought that you were going to be, right? Ten years ago, this, was, you know, this, is, you know, this would, wouldn't have been in your wildest imaginations. But look at what happened. I'll tell you what happened. You were a 2332 back then. And then the Buddha Dhamma passed. Right? So 3221 kept passing through your mind. And then the 2 stopped being 2. It didn't change to 3. It stopped being 2. And 3 started to happen. 
That's what happened. So now you are different. So if you can change, again, change is the wrong word here, but if you can change, then why can't others? So is it fair then to, 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 to box people up and say, you know, this is a bad person or even this is a good person? There are no such things as bad people and good people. All there are are manifestations. An, arahat, an arahant is only good for as long as he's an arahant. If at any point he stops being an arahant, then you know you you can't you can't give him any guarantees. But the reason an arahant doesn't change is because there are no causes left for that mind to be influenced to once again accept nitya sukha and atta as a concept it doesn't it doesn't do that anymore it's it's incapable because you know once you've seen the light you've seen the light how can you how can you forget the light once you've seen the light how can you not understand the light once you've seen the light once you've seen it you've seen it once you've seen the truth you've seen the truth you can't unsee the truth but you can unsee a lie but you can't unsee the truth and what are you doing right now? You're unseeing the lie that you've been seeing all these years, right? But can you unsee the truth? No, the truth is the truth. Once you've seen the truth, you've seen it. So here you need to, when we talked about the, the making a cup of tea, you know, explain to you the, the concept of none, none of these things are time bound. You can't, you can't ex- explain this, you can't, Impose this on a on a on a time dimension. I think I, we we talked about why the mind constructs the dimension of time. You know, when you want to compare one thing with itself, right? It creates the concept of time. You can say two things are. You can compare two things, right? If I showed you these two things, you can tell me you like one better than the other because you have two things to compare. But what if I asked you, just showed you this and say which one's better? You can't answer that question until and unless you add the time dimension. Because once you add the time dimension, now there is a version of this in the past and there's a version of this in the present and there will be a version of this in the future. In fact, you have three copies of the same thing. A minimum of three copies. Because in the past, how many, how many instances in the past? An infinite number of instances in the past. right? Because that is what time is, right? If this is the present, this way you have it goes up to infinity so in each of these moments an infinite number of moments you have a version of this isn't that how you say this was younger she was younger in her youth but now she's old and she will be older going forward so you now you can compare so you can say you know you know when i was younger i had i had longer hair you know, I had I had thick jet black hair. You know, I had I had uh, my my skin wasn't wrinkled like this. I was I was very I was very bright and I was very very colorful, very very you know full of vitality. You can talk about yourself. So what are you comparing yourself with? Yourself, but on the time dimension. Without time, you can't compare yourself with anything. You can't compare an object with itself without time, because an object only exists in that moment. This is a manifestation in this moment. This wasn't there in a, in a second ago. A second ago, it was not this pen. But neither was it a different pen. 
The second ago, what was there, were the causes that manifested at that moment. What is here now are the causes that manifest in this moment. What will be in the future are causes that will manifest in that moment. It's not the same pen, but it's not, the, not a different pen. If you ask me if it's a different pen, you know, I can't give you a yes answer to that because it's not a different pen. The same causes, right? Rearrangements. Causes keep coming together. You know, it's not like, but don't imagine that this is like a pulsating action, you know, like where causes come together, they, they go back and they come again and they, they disperse and they come again. You know, it's not like a swing. It's not, it's not like that. If, if I were to draw the existence of this pen on an axis, I couldn't draw it like this, in fact. I'd have to draw a straight line. You know, although we draw, when we talk about the, the mind, remember, we used to draw this. So then it gives you the, <coughs> excuse me. So then it gave you the impression, perhaps, that there's a moment when it is at its peak, right? So arising, a little bit more arising and arising, and yeah, it's just arising. And then now it's passing away, it's passing away, passing away, and at this point, everything's gone. This is simply a model to explain a concept. This is not how anicca works. You know, it's not like it's like a wave action of rising and passing. <laughs> that is not how you see, how you perceive this, because it's not like the matter that make this up come together and then disperse again, in a you know in a in a sine wave. It's not that's not how it works. I'd have to draw a straight line. But what I need you to understand is in each of these moments. Now, if you zoom in those moments, there's another moment there. So incessantly. I, I couldn't say between these two moments, because between those two moments, put it under the microscope, there are a million moments, you know, there's an infinite number of moments. So in every instance, here's the problem, right? I'm using a two-dimensional language to talk about something that is three-dimensional. That is the problem here, because I'm talking at this moment, and then in this moment. And the moment I say that, <laughs> the moment I say that, now you have an in-between. But what's there? More moments, just more moments. And between those two moments, more moments. So there is never a moment where there is no moment. All there is, is a, is a manifestation. But in each of those moments, ladies and gentlemen, it's just you know, the same causes. Provided the same causes are there, the same effect manifests. <clears throat> Remember a long time ago I asked you, when I hold this pen up like this, right? it's up here because of the energy that I provided. Okay? If it was like this, you'd have to see it going like this. Right? More energy, less energy. More energy, less energy. Energy comes together and energy disperses. But you don't see it happening like that. It's just like, you know, it's just steady. How so? Because the energy that is being supplied is constant. The energy being supplied is constant and therefore it's up here. But it's not the energy now that is the energy here now. It's a different amount of energy, a different packet of energy a different instance of energy, but that energy is provided constantly. The point is, it would not be here if not for the energy. So take out the energy, you won't have a pen standing in still air. Meaning, what you see here is a manifestation. Like a ball on a, on a water fountain. That you don't see the ball going up and down. Because the water is constantly being supplied and keeping it up in that position. But it's not the same drop of water in two moments. 
right? It's, 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 it's a different quantity of water. But same or different, it's still water that keeps the ball up, up in, that, in that position. So how is it up there? It's because of Anicca. Buddha Dhamma. This is Buddha Dhamma. All I'm sharing with you is how do you understand the world that you live in? Because when you don't understand the world you live in, you try to take this rupa and you try to do all sorts of things with this rupa that you're not supposed to. The mind's job is to perceive arrangements. The mind's job is to perceive a structure. The mind's job is to perceive manifestations. It's not to perceive a separated entity. That is why Rupa Vedana and Sanya Sankara Vijnana or the process of the mind, its job is not to separate. Separation is done through ignorance and attachment. When ignorance and attachment comes into the mind, now Rupa becomes Rupa Upadana. It is no longer Rupa. Rupa Rupa Upadana. Vedana Upadana. Sanya Upadana. Sankara and Vinyan Upadana. Rupan Rupattaya. Sankatanga Bisankaranti. Meaning, the abuse of Rupa. It is the abuse of Rupa. Using Rupa to make something that does not exist. Which is a separated Rupa. That is why you see that this flower is a very separate flower to this. See, you can't help yourself from seeing those, these two things as very separate objects. In fact, if I were to take one of these and put it on this, you'd tell me that that flower belonged to this, this branch. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you feel that way? If I took one of these flowers and put it on here, you'll tell me, that, no, Swami, no, so it has to go back to that branch because that flower belongs to that branch. Why do you say that? The flowers don't protest. The branches don't protest. It's just that you feel that there are, there are things that belong in this world. That's why your son belongs to you. At least you feel that way. Your husband belongs to you. Your wife belongs to you. See? I can hear you saying, so I'm going to say, yes, help me with that problem. <laughs> your house belongs to you. Your car belongs to you. What happens when things belong to you? What else comes your way? Yes. Fear, grief, worry, lamentation, frustration, disappointment, all this. The 11 great fires. They come your way the moment things start to belong to you. So you see, when, when, you, feel, when you believe that this flower belongs to this branch, and therefore when I take this flower out and put it on, on that branch, now you have a problem with that. You'll tell me that it is out of place, meaning there was a place for it. Meaning, between these two manifestations, you prefer one. You don't like the other. Therefore, in other words, really, you've stopped seeing manifestations and what you have begun to see are fixed objects. Because if it's a manifestation, ladies and gentlemen, there is no right or wrong place for anything. It's just a manifestation. Why do you have a right place and a wrong place for something? Because they're fixed. You know, if a man walks into a lady's toilet, how would you feel about that? Oh, wrong, 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 wrong. That shouldn't happen. Wrong. Yes, conventionally it is wrong. So don't do that. But 
in, a, in, in, in reality, in absolute terms, when a lady walks into a lady's toilet, what happens? Body, a body, right? That is muscle, bones, veins, blood, right? All that is, well, it moves into a toilet, into, into a washroom. What happens when a man goes into a washroom? Same thing. Blood, bones, vessels, muscles, right? That moves into <laughs> washrooms. What's the difference? Different configurations, different arrangement. I mean, you, you see, you could feed two identical twins. They're, well, they're not identical just for the fact that one's a boy, one's a girl. But other than that, they're, they're the same, right? So they're twins, just not identical, different sex. You could feed them the same amount of food. So there's no other way they could get any, other, any, any energy other than from the food that they eat. We could feed them the same amount of food for 10 years. Okay? The same type of food, the same quantities. So it's the same amount of vegetables, the same amount of fruit, the same amount of rice, the same amount of fish, whatever. Whatever you feed them, the same quantities. And they, and they have to eat absolutely everything. You can't leave anything. Now, at the end of these 10 years, what should you be able to see? Technically speaking, they should both be the same, right? But they don't. On one hand, you see a grown-up girl. On the other hand, you see a grown-up boy. That is so because there's the DNA in their body, which is the, which is the, the, the manual, which is the, the coding, which is the model into which all elements when fed into, you know, it has the arrangement that whatever comes in through the body has to, be, has to, be, has to take. It is the arrangement. It's the blueprint, essentially. They call it the blueprint of, of, of the human body. All biological things have that. So that blueprint, basically what it does is it, it, it remodels anything that you throw, it, throw at it. It remodels it into the arrangement that it is, it is destined to be. So a, a female body will have a blueprint where it, whatever comes its way, it will rearrange it into the various parts of the female body. So no matter how much a man eats, right, he's never going to have a womb or ovaries or anything like that. Because it's just not part of their DNA. It just doesn't happen. Because that arrangement will never transform into a different kind of arrangement. But all there is is an arrangement. That is what we need to understand. It's just tough being put into a model. <clears throat> Say if you had a balloon, like two balloons, <clears throat> one like this, that's one balloon, and another balloon like this. Okay, you connect them to the same pipe, okay, and you, and you pump air. Okay, so now... Half of it goes this way, the other half goes this way. After a while, the air takes what shape? The shape of the balloon, right? That is because as air enters into each of these, <coughs> into each of these balloons, there's a model into which it needs to go and fit. It's just an arrangement. So if you, if once the air starts filling into this, Right? It, it will take this shape. This is the air. That's taking this shape. Right? And the air in this is going to take that shape. 
That is because this is, this is the shape that it is bound to take. Because it's filling a vessel of that particular shape. But ultimately it's just air, is it not? Could you not take part of this air and put it into that and swap it around? Now imagine we took these balloons out, right? And they, were, they had the same volume, okay? So this is also 10 liters, this is also 10 liters. We took those, these two balloons after having fully pumped them with air and we, we, we take the air back out of this balloon into a canister. So two canisters. So one goes into this, this is canister A, and this goes into this, canister B. Now what do I do? Hmm? I switch them around. I put canister B into canister A, uh, into balloon A, and the canister A into balloon B. And now I pump the air back, back in again. What's going to happen? Aren't the balloons going to blow up? Is the air going to go, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. I'm, I'm not used to this. Is the air going to go and take this shape now? Hmm? Is it? No. Why not? Because it was just the arrangement. And to the air, you know, it matters not what the arrangement is. Whatever the arrangement is, the air's job is just to go and take that space. The same thing happens with the stuff that you eat. The same thing happens with the, with the structures that you carry around with you. Your bodies are just that. It's just an arrangement dictated by your, by your genetics. That is just the blueprint. So whatever stuff you put in through the holes in, your, in, in the middle of your faces, it just takes that shape. That's all it is. So it's, you know, your, your, your arm is just a blown up balloon. That's all it is. Instead of air, they've pumped food. That's what this is. So then why do you feel then that this is your arm? Or if, you know, if this is a, an, uh, the arm of, 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 a, of a girl or a boy, you know, why, do you, why when, you, when you touch it, you feel something special? If you're a girl and you touch a boy's arm, why do you feel, ooh, <laughs> what's all that? Where's that coming from? Where's all that coming from? It's just a different shape. So how then, how then does sensuality come into this? It's not in the object. Because if you can feel lust and, and sensuality towards a male or female hand or an object of their body, then you must be feeling it towards a carrot. Because it is a carrot that went on to become the part of the body. You must feel the sensual lust and the desire towards a tomato and a potato and an onion. When was the last time you felt an onion and went, oh, onion. <laughs> but you do know that it's that onion that was eaten that went into, went into making the hand that you hold today and go, <laughs> It's nonsense, isn't it? Reason for that is because once it's an onion, to, in your mind it's an onion. You fix it as an onion. Hmm? Or you fix it as a potato. When the potato goes into the body, right, mushy, mushy, and then, then digestion here becomes the, the muscles and the bones and the veins and the blood and all that, and it goes, goes and goes in and fills this balloon, this shape, then you go, oh hand. 
Now it's a girl's hand. Previously, it was a potato. Whose potato? Boy's potato or girl's potato? I mean, when you go to the shop and you want to go and buy potatoes and you ask the shopkeeper, can I have some potatoes? Does he ask you for your daughter or your son, sir? Huh? Do they have male potatoes and female potatoes? So at what point does it become a male or a female? All you are is just a figure. That's all it is. It's just an arrangement. It's just an arrangement. So any, any, any special feelings that you might have, you know, towards a, gen, a member of the opposite sex, is just madness. That's all it is. It's because you don't, you don't, you don't hear the Buddha Dhamma. That's why. The Buddha Dhamma doesn't resonate in your mind. Because you are a disciple of the Mara. <laughs> That's why. You hear the Mara Dhamma. When you see a girl, you think, Mara. Mara. <laughs> that is Mara Dhamma. Yeah, this is just stuff. Matter stuffed into a shape. Balloons of two shapes. How do you know a woman when you see one? Is it not through by, by shape? How do, you man, how do you know a man when you see one? Shape. Well, just like these two balloons. What went into blowing them up? Just the stuff that you pumped through them. Right? That is why we have a mouth and we put stuff through it. So if you are telling me that all this is, is just two shapes and the air within, within side, you know, inside these two balloons is just air, you could take one from this and put it into the other, right? Why does the hair that comes from your, uh, you know, your, 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 uh, your loved one, right? Or, or a girl or a boy, you know, why, does that, why is that special? How is that special? You know, why, why do people take a strand of hair from, from their fiancé or, you know, maybe someone they have, an, have a crush on, right? And they, they put it into their, into their books or maybe under their pillow, into their wallet, right? What's all that nonsense? I say it's nonsense, not, not, you know, not to mock them. I just, it's, there's no sense in it. Hence nonsense. There's no sense in it. It is because they are delusioned. You know, they live... They live yeah, they're lunatics, essentially. Not in the conventional sense, but in absolute terms, you know, that is lunacy. It's madness. Because what went into making that hair? The stuff that was shoved in. The same stuff went into making a boy's hair that went into making a girl's hair. So what's the difference? Just a different shape. It's like the balloon. The same air pumped into two different shapes takes that shape. That's all. But we don't feel that way, do we? We feel that this is a boy, this is a girl, this is a man, this is a woman. It's because you see something beyond the manifestation. Because of ignorance. I mean, have sympathy towards yourself. As I share this story with you, you know, you see something because of ignorance. Ignorance is not, it's not something to write home about. Ignorance is something to be, be pitiful about towards yourself. Yeah, yeah, I'm ignorant. <laughs> that's, that's not something to be proud of. I'm, you know, I'm ignorant. Come on, you're ignorant. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, you know, so yeah, you know, there are young children, yeah, right? Girls and boys, do a Buddha, right? You know, if someone comes and says, Oh my god, you know, you're so pretty, you're so beautiful, I just want to live the rest of my life with you, understand that, you know, they are mad. Don't fall for that. They see something that does not exist. I mean, what do you what do you call a person who walks around, you know, just he just walks around and you know he says butterflies. Oh, butterflies. Like they just walk around saying butterflies. Then another butterfly. Another butterfly. What would you call a man like that? A madman, right? Because they're seeing things that you don't see, that we don't see. They're mad. They've gone crazy. So someone comes to you and says, Hey darling, <laughs> aren't you pretty? What are they really saying? You know, this shape, I see something beyond that. I see something that does not exist. So they see butterflies. Don't fall for that. Would you like to get married to a madman? Hmm? If they come to you asking for marriage, asking for your hand in marriage, what are they? If someone comes to you asking for your hand in marriage, what are they? They're mad. Now you just said you don't marry a madman. So if you want to marry someone, marry an arahant. Ask them, are you an arahant? First ask them, are you an arahant? Because at least then you will see me for who I really am. Just mind and matter. This is just a shape. If ever you want to get married, get married to an arahant. Right? But not this side of it. Because anyone who's not an arahant is more or less mad. But if you also see these things, things that don't exist, you see beyond manifestations. If you see beyond manifestations, then you need to understand that you're seeing the maradhamma. You're not seeing anicca. You're seeing nicca. Nicca is unconditional. Meaning, things are there without conditions. Does that make sense? Can something be there without conditions? No. Unless, of course, that is your perception. If things are there without conditions, then that is the, the perception of nature. It is only a perception. There never was anything like that and there never will be anything like that. If there is anything, it will only be a conditioned thing. Meaning, for as long as the conditions exist, Whatever the object is will, will manifest. Without the conditions, nothing can stand up on its own. It must always be there because of conditions. But if you, if you, if you perceive the world as something that is nature, you will see the world as something that is not bound together by conditions. You will see it as being unconditioned. That is wrong. It can't be so. It is wrong. So we need to, you need to kick yourself out of that perception and come to some maditti. And if and when you see that the world is not conditioned and you see it as being unconditioned, now you see them as entities, as beings or things that are connected to beings, sentient beings. That is why you perceive yourself as a sentient being. It is only now, don't you think, you realize that you are just a feeling? Uh, this, this feeling that you... Uh -huh. It's just a feeling, isn't it? Today you realize that. I'm not an individual. I'm just a mind. This is just a mind that feels that I'm an individual. 
and the names that have been given to me the name that has been given to me is just a name that has been given to a mind that perceives a self you know have you really not devalued yourself compared to what you used to just think about how you were right? how much value you gave to yourself that you thought of yourself as a as an individual and a very important person right and with all the mana ego so you 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 gave yourself so much value that you could compare yourselves with others either you would say i'm better than someone i'm less than someone or i'm equal to someone but have you not really begun to devalue yourselves how do you devalue yourselves because now you recognize that this feeling of self is just a perception this is just a mind just mind and matter but a mind that has because of ignorance thinks that i am separate from everything else that i am an identity i am unique from everything else it's just a perception of the mind if you can once you begin to understand this you don't give value to yourself that's why you become selfless and then whenever you deal with others you don't look for you know you don't look for the upper hand you don't look for what's in it for me that is why narahan doesn't look for that but whenever you you sense a self and you don't know it's just a sense you think that it is it is actually an identity it's a person right now you have that self to to maintain and give you have to give it its its rightful place so whenever you are in any any transaction any relationship any conversation you're always looking for what's in it for me can you think of any one relationship that you got into before you understood the dhamma where you didn't walk into it looking for what was in it for you hmm? can you name one relationship like that every relationship that you got yourselves into or you found yourselves in it was you you always looked for what is in it for me whether it was husband wife relationship it was always you know what was in it for me this is why when you realize that i am not getting the better deal what did what do people do they split up because if they're not in it for them i just think about it right so there's a husband and a wife man and woman living together the wife the, the husband is a cheater is a womanizer right if the wife is in that relationship just for the benefit of the husband right then for him it's all the better that she is the wife because you know she doesn't fuss about it imagine if if the wife were to say i'm in this relationship because all because i just want to make my husband happy right if it was a different wife she would make a fuss about him going out with other women so to benefit my husband i'm just going to be with him as his wife and he can go and see whoever he wants and when he when he's done with them then he can come to me also who does that no one does that because they're in that relationship looking for something for them that is why when they feel and they when they realize that i'm being cheated on i am not getting the deal that i expected out of it this is a foul deal now they want to start talking about splitting up why did you cheat on whom me this is the question is not why did you cheat is it if they were just interested in virtue hmm, and the fact that this man should go to heaven after he dies then he should she should just be asking why did you cheat 
because it is cheating that this that 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 you know takes this man to hell not cheating on me so why do they ask why did you cheat on me that is the more painful part not the cheating but cheating on me is the painful part is the hurtful part because there are also people cheating there are people cheating everywhere but if you cheat on me that's painful i don't like that why did you lie to me why did you lie to me because i got into this relationship on trust you lied to me you've broken my trust meaning i'm not getting what i expected out of this relationship i expected integrity i expected i expected honesty but now i'm not getting what i expected so therefore end of this relationship we don't want this again so people go into a relationship whatever that relationship is expecting something for them because they exist they can't help it you don't cook just for others <laughs> you cook for yourself as well until and unless you become an arahant because an arahant does not have a self to protect to take care of to look after to shelter to guard he does not perceive himself so he is never going to ask why did you cheat on me he might ask this though why did you cheat that he might ask because in cheating the person who has cheated has done bad to himself has done evil to himself because because of cheating you know that is demerit right which could cause him harm and maybe you know a birth in the four hells perhaps so the arahant doesn't go and ask why did you cheat on me the arahant doesn't ask why did you lie to me it doesn't matter who you lied to the fact that is you lied that is the problem lying is the problem not lying to me i don't care whether you lie to me or to tell me the truth don't care frankly but wherever you sense a self you wherever you sense that you are there you exist right you will always look for your part you will always look for your benefit your advantage what's in it for me become someone who doesn't look for what's in it for you that that is what we need to try to get to if you are someone who's always looking for what's in it for me that is your loss then you are not mature enough that maturity that is the maturity we aim for in the sasana maturity that people aim for in the world out there if you can know how to drive a car if you know how to get a loan if you know how to get married if you know how to have kids if you know how to go to the school if you know how to you know go to go shopping you are mature in the sasana that is not maturity the sasana maturity is by how much you don't sense that things are done for you or you are doing them right this sense of self the amount by which you have diminished extinguished exterminated this sense of self is your maturity so an arahant is someone who has matured a sotapanna is someone who has started maturing and then they continue to mature until they become a matured person so prutagdana is someone who is immature because they don't understand the dhamma they don't see buddha dhamma they don't see nibbana in this they can't hear nibbana in this they don't see anicca they don't see that this is just manifestations they don't see that so they're blind to that truth they're deaf to that truth so open your eyes open your ears 
Listen to what this has to say. See Anicca. Don't give yourself so much value, but you can't do it out of, you know, by, by force. You have to understand this. You have to, you have to, in fact, you have to be embarrassed by the fact that you feel that you are an individual. I'm not even talking about ego. I'm not, ta- I'm not even talking about, you know, I'm not saying that you have to be embarrassed if you feel that you are better than others. What I'm saying is you should be embarrassed if you feel that you are someone and there are others. That in itself is an embarrassment. Because what that is, is suffering. It is the mind gone mad. So what talk is there about, I'm better than them, I'm less than them, I'm the same as them. Hmm? What talk is there in that? Just the fact that your mind thinks that it's a male is madness. How can a mind be male? How can a mind be female? But if I ask you, who are you? You say, I'm, I'm a man, I'm a woman. See, I'm male, I'm female, can't you see? You might ask me. You point at the body and say, I am. So who's saying this? Is the body speaking? No, the mind is speaking. So how can the mind look at the body and go, I'm a male, I'm a female? The mind is the mind, the body is the body. That's it. When you drive a car, do you say that I am a car? Hmm? When you drive a car, someone asks you, who are you? I'm a car. <laughs> do you say that? Do you? When you drive a lorry, do you say I'm a lorry? Do you? No, you just say I'm a driver in a lorry, in a car. Yeah. So then I ask you, what are you? Exactly. I'm a mind and I mind. Then, but then don't tell me I'm a, I'm a man, I'm a woman. Because that's just the vehicle that you're in. That's just the vehicle that you're in. So how can you identify yourself as the vehicle that you're in? So who do you love then? When you, when you see someone and you feel an attraction, is it just the body that you feel an attraction to? Well, in which case, let's go to the mortuary. There are lots of bodies and no one's going to object. You can bring them home. No, that's not what you want, right? You want them to feel about you, don't you? Like when we talk about attraction, when we talk about, you know, this this relationships, we, you want people to feel about you the way they feel, do feel about them, right? Yeah. So in other words, they have to see that you are a woman or you are a man, just as you see that they are a man or a woman, and you have to have those mutual thoughts, feelings about each other. In other words, you want them to be mad. That's true. Madly in love. Yep. I get that now. I understand that. Yep. Madly in love. <laughs> you can't be in love any other way. It has to be madly in love. I mean, open your eyes and, and uh, you know, see the truth. There's a mind inside this. If this is the body of a woman and this is the body of a man, there's a mind inside this and you want that mind to perceive that it is a, it is a woman. That is why, you know, if you are a boy and you're in a relationship with a girl, you want that girl to do girl things. Don't you? As a man, if you, you want you know, someone to be girly, you want the girl to do girl things. Like you want them to hang on your, hang on your arm, maybe arm candy. 
You want them to come up to you, hello, good morning. You want them to be you know, cuddle up to you. Why? You want them to do girl things. You want them to grow their hair and, and, and enjoy doing that for you. You want them to put up, maybe put up some makeup, you know, do, do themselves up and for you. You want them to do that. You want them to come up to you and talk to you in loving words because you want that mind to identify itself as a woman. What an unreasonable expectation that is. You want that mind to identify itself as a woman. But it is not true. How can a mind identify itself as a woman? Because it's, then, you know, when you drive a car, you should be saying, I'm a car. What if, what if you find yourself on a cow one day? Riding a cow? Huh? <laughs> or a donkey? Then you should say, I'm a donkey. I mean, if you if you are telling me that you are a woman, you are telling me, sir, you are a, sir, you are a, you are a man because of what you drive, then the same should be true. You drive a donkey, you say, I'm a donkey. But you don't say that. You just say, I'm riding a donkey. So you can say, I'm riding a man. That's okay. I'm riding a woman. That's fine. Because that's what's really going on. There's a mind that is working inside this configuration this arrangement of just carbons, hydrogens, oxygens, nitrogens, protons and neutrons and electrons and all the other stuff that make up your bodies and you're just the driver. That's it. And this is a curse really, not a blessing. Because the mind wanted stuff. The mind wanted to see things and taste things and smell things and touch things. right? And this is the, this is the punishment that you got for it. So now you have to walk around in this car because without this car, without this vehicle, you're not going to experience any of it. Because the mind can't see on its own, it needs eyes to see. The mind can't hear on its own, it needs an ear to hear. It can't taste on its own, it needs a tongue to taste. Right? So all these things have to come fixed. And the body has to now find a way to transfer, transfer those sensations to the mind. That is why it uses the brain. See the whole setup, just look at yourselves folks. I'm asking you, just look at yourselves and look at how you've been made up. Your makeup itself is a sad story. Just look at yourselves. And have pity on yourselves. Just, it's just your makeup is a sad story. This is a sorry tale. It's a catastrophe what you've done to yourselves. This is not something to celebrate. I don't know why two people get on a poor rule. This is not a this is not a reason to celebrate. This is something to be remorseful of, to regret. Look at what I've done to myself. All because of separation. Because you don't hear the Buddha's words. You hear Maradhamma. But this is crying out loud Nibbana. So listen. Heed. Pay attention. And you will hear it. Just as I hold this up in my hand, you can hold anything in your hand, including yourself. Put yourself here. And see if you can hear Nibbana. 
Look at yourselves through the lens that I have asked you to look at today. If you really understand my words today, folks, you know, I don't I have any reason. I don't know any reason why you should go home today. I don't know any reason why if you been if you have been in a relationship or you want to get into a relationship after you listen to this, you must think, you know, this is complete madness. If I am not a man, how can I fall in love with a woman? And this is just a mind. Why does a mind need to fall in love with, fall in love with anyone? A mind is just a mind. It just minds. That's what it does. You're just in the, this is just a this is just a vehicle that you're traveling in. And once you get out of this vehicle in this birth, in the next birth, you get into another one. That's it. So this is just a temporary vehicle that you're in. Understand that. Right, time's up, isn't it? <clears throat> you know, I don't mean to offend anyone, right? Hmm? I just want to help people see the truth and free themselves from suffering. Because suffering is all self-made. You make your own suffering. I don't want you to do that. When there's an alternative. When there is no Buddha, when there is no Buddha Dhamma, suffer all you like. But now that we have the Buddha Dhamma, now that we have the truth, now that we have the Mahasangha, you don't need to. I just want you to understand the truth and enjoy the bliss that I do today. The bliss in not thinking that I'm a man. Because I don't think I'm a man. I don't see a woman and go, can I have her please? I don't feel that way. I don't feel that way. Only because I don't feel of my, feel about myself as a man. That's why I don't look at a woman and go, can I have her? I know the mind is just a mind. The mind is not a man mind or a female mind. There's no such thing. But when the mind goes mad, it looks at itself in the mirror and thinks, oh, 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 okay, I must be a man then. I'm a man. That's what happens. So if you can be free, if you can enjoy that freedom, right, there'll be bliss. Because what happens if you feel that you are a man and you want a woman? Now, your happiness depends on her word, doesn't it? Hmm? And you have to protect her. You have to guard her. You have to be, you know, uh, her... You have to get her permission, you have to get her parents' permission and all sorts. And then even if she belongs to you one day, now you have to still keep her safe. And if someone comes to take her, now what do you do? What be bodhisattva? Now you have to fight for her and earn all sorts of demerit by doing so. All because you feel you are a man. The same goes if you are a woman. So try and break out of that nonsensical fantasy and come to your senses right let's transfer the mates we have acquired today first and foremost let us all take a moment to remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the lord buddha's teaching and with immense gratitude towards the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis upasakas and upasikas who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the buddha and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the tripitaka which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand and comprehend the Dhamma, let us take a moment to transfer all the mates we have acquired to them. 
At Ashtanga Sadamese, we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us also transfer these merits to my teacher, Guru Swami Mahanse, as well as all the monks resident at the monastery and the Anagarika and Anagarika communities attached to the monastery. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by translating these talks, sharing them out with others or inviting others to join them, and may by the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also transfer merits to our devotees and friends of the monastery, who for the sake of merits, to help them attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana, continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who contribute to the construction of the monastery, to those who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes and medicines, as well as pass on their know-how and continue to extend their well wishes. May by the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to our mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our elders, friends and acquaintances, employers, employees, and to all those who have helped us, supported us and assisted us in any way, shape or form. And by the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to the devas and brahmas, spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Sambhuta Sasana. Let us transfer merits to our guardian deities who keep a watchful lie over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may, by the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to our ancestors who have predeceased us. To all those who have been our families, friends and acquaintances in this infinitely long journey of Sansara, let us take a moment to transfer these merits to those who have helped us, supported us and assisted us in any way, shape or form. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits to members of the armed forces, as well as the police force who sacrificed their lives to, to protect the peace and harmony of our nation. And also to transfer merits to those who lost their lives in the war, be their friend or foe. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to those who might have lost their lives from natural calamities such as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides, forest fires, pandemics, blizzards and so on. Reminding ourselves that in this infinitely long journey of Sansara, there have been mothers and fathers to us, helped us, supported us and assisted us in any way, shape or form possible and available to them and made by the power of these merits. If any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, Fulfill the noble eightfold path and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us all resolve that may, by the power and blessings of all the maids we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of our hands on this blessed land. And finally, may, by the power of the maids we have all acquired throughout the day, you and I and everyone who's helped make this program a success become an Arahat and Mahanse, an Arahat Teranin Mahanse in this very life itself and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all. And the members of the Mahasangha will now transfer their blessings to you. Raga 
Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. 